and welcome to episode 8 of That 60s Recording Podcast. Um, I am your host, Joe Montague. Um, can't believe we're on episode 8 already. Where is that time gone? That's four months I've been doing this now. Wow. Um, okay, so today I am chatting to um, Rich Pagano, um, who is a drummer from New York City. Um, he plays drums in the Fab Faux, who are a... Uh, Beatles tribute show. Um, I'm sure you you will have all have heard of them, but they are a Beatles tribute show. Who they don't dress up; they just um, replicate the uh, the recordings live, essentially. Um, and Rich also runs, or used to run, as you'll hear, um, a course um, called uh, the Art of Vintage Drum Recording, um, which is was one of the main reasons I wanted him to, uh, wanted him to come on and chat because I uh, thought it'd be really interesting to hear about uh, his ideas on that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, the, it's a quite a technical episode. Um, Rich is a, a, a wealth of knowledge on on this subject, and there's some pretty specific drum knowledge. Um, as I said, it's a it's a pretty drumtastic time for the podcast at the moment. Um, you'll hear that ne- the next episode is drums as well. Um, but I I hope that you you enjoy listening to it because uh, you know I know a lot of the artists I work with, even if they don't play drums, they enjoy hearing sort of drum conversation. I think drums can be a bit of a mystery. I mean, <laughs> they're a blooming mystery to me, <laughs> um, but I think they can be a bit of a mystery um, to uh, to to people. Um, so I hope that you enjoy listening to it, and I hope that it gives you some good advice um, on how to get great drum sa- sounds or placements or um, or it's just interesting. So anyway, as you, I'll stop waffling, <laughs> and I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Rich Bagano. So today uh, we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Rich Bagano, who is, um, a, a, among other things, a drummer, uh, a studio owner, a producer, a songwriter, um, and uh, you seem to have so many strings to your bow. And uh, the thing that brought you to my attention was your work with the Fab Faux, um, and uh, and that's why you and you run a a um, course. Um, at NYU called The Art of Recording Classic Drums, um, which I also thought would be very interesting um, to hear about. So uh, that's the, uh, the the reasons why you're listening to Rich. So uh, thank you for coming and speaking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I just, um, and thanks for the, uh, the, the, the resume. The only difference would be is I'm no longer, um, I'm no longer a teacher at NYU, um, I did it for about five years, and then I had a, a very busy schedule. I'm not saying I'm, I'll never do it again. We're always talking, um, but uh, yeah, that's the Clive Davis Institute of Recording in New York City, um, and I have an interesting story of how that started for you, if you'd like. But um, I think that you know, between COVID and um, and scheduling, and and also the type of courses that they're offering now. Um, uh, I took a bit of a break, but I love teaching, and I I, I think that that is one of the most progressive uh, uh, schools uh, that uh, that a young engineer could go to. I mean, if they're covering um, real specific things like um, 
the, the so the course that you run i will talk about it a little i mean well, there's no reason why we can't talk about it now but um it covers a very specific 20 year period and if they're focusing even um in on recording drums specifically in that specific 20 year period then um they do seem that's really progressive and that's uh, that's incredible um that they're doing such a, a great thing or were doing such a great thing well I- I would say that um, uh, as far as being progressive is that they do, um, uh, they can, they have to be textbook because I'm assuming that parents, I shouldn't assume, I know for, for a fact that, you know, parents like to know that the kids are opening books. Um, but what I liked about um, the um, administration over there is they have a nice mix of, of, of classic uh, instructors and also uh, younger uh, hit producers and instructors who uh, can also bring what's happening sonically these days, uh, you know, to uh, to the textbook portion. I mean, hip hop really is uh, uh, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, I learn so much these days by listening to how young hip hop engineers are balancing their mixes and and how we're using frequencies. Um, but I think the 20-year uh, progression of drum sounds, that was for the most part my class. Um, I was um, using an umbrella of, uh, I would say, late 50s Rudy Van Gelder, which is a New Jersey studio um, that made a lot of great jazz records for Blue Note, uh, Blue Note Records. And... Um, really had an incredible way of making his room sound uh, much bigger than it was and and uh, just really great sense of balance on drums. It became a template for a jazz drum sound. Um, I then go to uh, a Motown sound, which is for the most part uh, a jazz sound because, you know, they really were jazz drummers, the Motown drummers, so they would bring their kit or tune their kit uh, at the session the way they would normally tune their drums, which was kind of high-pitched. Um, I then would take the class, and this is every week now, we would go uh, with a different era. I, uh, and I would then take the... And I, I also would, would call interviews, and a few of the engineers uh, that I'm showcasing uh, within uh, certain timelines, I had interviewed or spent some time with so I was able to give, um, you know, first-hand info uh, if they were forthcoming. But after Motown, we would go into, um, I would say we would do a little bit of what was starting in rock and roll, maybe early Beatles and and, uh, and Stones, um, and then right to Glenn Johns, uh, the uh, Led Zeppelin sound, and um, then Abbey Road. We'd spend a, a, a full day on the Abbey Road sound. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I got to, to know the late, great Jeff Emrick fairly well. And and Jeff and I had a few conversations, and we also did a session together with the Fab Four. We did a, a tutorial with him. And uh, he was totally cool with me picking his brain and bringing in certain photos, asking if they were real session photos, or if they were, uh, as he would put it, uh, promo, where the, the Beatles would come in and he would just place mics around instruments and uh, it 
it looked like it was a session. And I said, well, how, how did I know the difference, I asked. And he said, uh, after the first few records, they didn't feel like they had to dress up anymore. So if you see them in the studio dressed up, working, it probably is a photo shoot. Um, but he really helped me with uh, understanding um, uh, tone and how to use your ears, get, spending as much time in the live room as possible. So Abbey Road um, is uh, towards the end of the, uh, of the course. And then beyond that, we, um, we go into the 70s. And I'm a big Bill Simzik fan. Of course, Bill did Joe Walsh records and the Eagles and, and, uh, and Face Dances by The Who. Um, and I also love uh, the sound of Gus Dudgeon's records, so we would spend a bit of time with the Nigel Olsen sound, which kind of a quintessential 70s drum sound. Um, and the final class would be a hybrid. I would have the students uh, pick what they love from each era, and we would make our own drum sound. Um, and of course, I had to keep it modern, and I had to show them how to make libraries of of kick and snare drum sounds, and and placing them into a grid. Just so, because you know, most of these uh, most of today's engineers, when they're young, they're in their bed bedroom and they're creating beats. They're not necessarily uh, getting a drummer to do the session. Having said that, they needed to know how to get those sounds, and in my opinion, not always rely on a sound library, library to get a drum sound. But um, if uh, I'll make a long story short, the way I got the gig was, um, you know, I make most of my living as a drummer, uh, although that seems to be changing as I become busier as a mix engineer and, and uh, certain levels of production in the studio. But I was called for a Motorola jingle in New York City, and the producer also asked me to, uh, um, to curate the musicians and, and the, um, the gear. So I got the right players, and um, I, you know, I contracted uh, uh, the right amps, and uh, I brought a, six, uh, a 1961 Ludwig drum set with correct heads, and uh, there was two young engineers come out, and they start micing the drum set up. And we all knew that it was a, um, a, a British invasion-type sound, early 60s, uh, which is why I brought, uh, I got a little ahead of myself, why I curated all of that gear or advanced all of that uh, vintage gear. The young engineers come out, and they start putting up stereo overheads and snare top and bottom and, you know, close 421s on toms. And so I said, you know, this is not going to get us the sound that we want. We're going for a British invasion sound. Um, and they turned to me and said, you know, we only know this drum-making setup. And I asked them where they went to school, and they told me, and I said, let's talk after the session. But right now, let me go look at the mic closet. So the producer let me go in, in his uh, private stash. And, of course, he had old German mics and RCA mics. And I said, I'll take that, 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 and that. And we did, you know, like a, a mono overhead with an RCA, um, some, like a Gefell mic right be behind the floor. Um, I'm not sure if we even mic'd the snare. Uh, a couple of Coles mics out in the room. I had them monitor it in mono and just kiss it with a plug-in Fairchild compressor. And it sounded great. And so the kids come in and they start dismantling the drum set, the, the mics on the drum set. 
And I said, um, you really should spend a bit of time in the golden age of recording drums. And um, they said, yeah, we wish that our school had taught us more about um, getting creative in the artistry of, of recording drums. And I asked where they went to school, and they told me. And um, yes, it was the Clyde Davis Institute of Recording, which I still would say is progressive, but really how much time can you spend on getting drum sounds? But it was important to me. Um, and I contacted the school, and the director heard me out. And after that, I started teaching there. And I never really was planning on becoming a teacher at a university. I, I would teach in my studio, um, small groups. But I love it. I love teaching the art of uh, getting drum sounds and and um, looking at it like a painting and uh, really understanding where the tone is coming from and how phase uh, can make a drum sound so beautiful. And not relying on compressors, not relying on outboard gear or or uh, EQs and uh, angling mics and finding where the puff of air comes out, which is um, not something I thought up, but it's a theory that really does work. Anyway, I've given you tons of stuff here. Yeah, I'm spoiled spoil for choice as to where to go now. I'm, I'm like a little uh, kid in a sweet shop. <laughs> um, so I'm just thinking... I'm thinking about where where we should focus on. I mean, we we may as well continue continue talking about this because it's where where we're currently at. I mean, I watched um, some of the snippets of the course um, on your website, and something that comes across, um, and I'm, it's come across there in in what you've just been talking about is just how passionate you are about um, getting these sounds. You know, you're really your attention to detail is unbelievable, um, and you really are. Uh, like buzzing to speak to the students about it. I mean, I was the the clips are a couple of minutes long, and I was hanging on your every word every every time. <laughs> oh, thanks. There's so much information um, on a drum, you know, from the rim to the center of the head. And there's so much. All in my opinion, all the EQing is right there. You know, your low end is going to be at the rim um, or the hoop, and uh, your high end is going to be more towards the center, especially with a kick drum. Um, and uh, I love that theory. Um, oh my goodness, the name of the book just escaped me. There's a great book out there. Um, making music? No, it's not making music. Um, maybe it'll come to me. Um, where you know, I guess this works for guitar amps and for uh, and for drums, of course. Is that when you tune the drum correctly, there's going to be one part of that head that where all of the resonance and all of the beauty is going to come together and it's just going to sort of flow out like a waterfall. And you could feel that with the back of your hand. If you move your palm along the rim, um, you suddenly feel a puff of air. That's where your microphone should go. Have a guitarist play a power chord, turn the amp up a little bit, and check for where that puff of air is coming out. The speaker is kind of showing you, and the, and the drummer is showing you where it wants to release the tone. And for years, I wondered why I never got, why I couldn't get good tom sounds, because I was putting it in a part of the head that was kind of working to make a different part of the head speak. Um, and once you find it, sometimes you'll have a little too much tone, but then you have to get into the art of angling your mics. Um, and bringing either uh, in more high end or creating a mid sweep, 
But, um, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. And uh, you talk to engineers, and I'm also an engineer, but, you know, when I'm on a session as a drummer, I'm usually hired to also get deep into the drum sounds or get into a period sound, not always. And it's amazing how many engineers and producers will say, most drummers don't know how to tune drums. Um, and that's a big part of my class, too, is we spend uh, a whole day on on the variables of um, of tuning a drum, uh, top head and bottom head and types of heads. And, and yeah, so um, I love it. And I actually just built a remote studio. Uh, we have a, a weekend house in upstate New York. And, of course, I need to send drum, uh, drum tracks uh, you know, back to the city for session work. And um, I have a great room up here that I didn't really know existed when we bought the house. <laughs> and by creating a, a building, a, a small studio here, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, starting my, my classes up here because um, the drums just sound so beautiful in this room up here. Anyway, um, once again, going off on tangents. <laughs> it's cool. I... I... Growing up, um, I've come to to recording personally in the last, um, so, so very seriously in the last say three or four years. And previous to that, it was just um, being the drummer in a studio. And you hear about, you know, I heard people talking about the sweet spot, and never really pictured it as an a, a real tactile thing. You know, a thing you can feel with your hand, a, a puff of air, like you're saying. Um, I really enjoy um, the how you're demystifying um, that process. It's almost, I mean, it, obviously it's an art, but it's almost scientific and you can you can produce the same results by following a, a method to an extent. Yes, by the way, the, the book is called Mixing With Your Ears. Ah. Um, it, and the two, um, uh, two revelations for me, I recommend that book um, to everybody. It really is a great Bible on, um, on getting creative and understanding how a room also reacts with a drum. Um, and that was one. And the other was talking to Jeff Emmerich. And Jeff was the first engineer that I saw put his ear um, right next to the hoop, right next to the shell. And there's actually one photo of Ringo. And I don't think it was a... I don't think it was a Beatles session. It may have been a Jackie Lomax session. But um, Jeff decided to put the microphones at the bottom head. And I showed him the photo, and he said, well, I must have taken the heads off. I said, no, he didn't. And uh, then, uh, you know, he's, he had a bit more clarity after a while and said, because I must have put my head, my ear down there and just loved the tone <laughs> of that bottom head. And the the point was... was uh, being realized by the, the large diaphragm tube mic that was over the toms. And once I tried that, where I, I did a mono overhead, usually about forehead height, um, and um, also, you know, with small diaphragm microphones, um, uh, cardioid mics at the bottom of my toms, I suddenly got the Abbey Road sound in a big way. Um, I'm not sure if he had done that on, on Abbey Road, but it was a good way for me to sort of have all of the tools to really uh, um, create that sound or realize that sound. 
And just knowing, that, and it also with symbols, he'll walk past the, he would walk past a symbol and, and just sort of go up and down with his ear and then place a mic right there. Like, you know, that was so groundbreaking. He was the first one that I had heard about and that most people tell me to bring the mics in that close. Um, Ken Scott took it even further. Ken brought uh, larger diaphragm mics, you know, from the photos I could see and from listening to him, larger diaphragm mics uh, further in towards the drums and the amplifiers, which has a lot to do with the sound of the White Album. It's, uh, I mean, previous to Jeff Emmerich, I guess Abbey Road's mic techniques, they were all done by the technicians. They'd have come in in their coats and, and done it all with measuring tape, I'm, I'm assuming. And, and uh, it was all really prescriptive. And I guess Jeff came in and, um, completely changed it, just decided he wanted to do what he thought sounded best rather than what the, the Abbey Road manual said. Well, I think Norman Smith, um, the original engineer, who I thought was also somewhat creative, um, but being a bit more textbook, um, and, you know, and he was Jeff's guru. But I guess, you know, Jeff just would roam around and see, okay, I see how that sounds, but if I brought that in further, then it would sound like this. And then when Norman split and the Beatles had carte blanche in the studio, um, and they also would ask Jeff, from what I've heard, um, they would ask Jeff to not make anything sound like the previous record, at least from 66 on. You have to get creative, um, and that meant... Um, you know, just um, throwing the book away, throwing the textbook away. Um, I wonder if uh, if you you might not know the answer to this question, but there's one photo I've seen of. Um, I'm sure it's a session that Jeff Emmerich is engineering, um, where there's two kick drum mics. It's quite a well known photo. You you may or may not have seen it. I've I've seen it around a few times, but from what I can gather, there's never been two kick mics. It might have been one of those. Um, sessions that you were talking about you know a promotional session um which i didn't know existed until you just told me then um but i, I, don't, I don't know have you seen that photo oh yeah oh yeah um yeah that was a revelation when i was young and i saw that photo and i i believe in you know um, um everyone most people use two more than uh, one microphone on the kick drum but um I also find it very easy to um, um, have one mic that's usually a large diaphragm mic that finds the sweet spot near the uh, shell. That's going to be your low end. But if you really want that point and don't want to rely on your compressor to get it initially, having, although I think he did use, um, he did use cardioid mics, but I tend to use a dynamic mic that, um, I slowly move with, with in-ears in, and we, we should talk about getting drum sounds with in-ears at some point. Uh, I, I'll, I'll find, uh, you know, I'll use my palm and I'll find where the air is, is uh, sort of bellowing out at the, at the, uh, uh, at the edges of the uh, shell. Low end is right there. Um, I need some point now. Take the dynamic mic. Um, it could be a D112. I'm not sure how deep you want me to get into microphones here, but you know, it could be it could be uh, you know a pointed a pointed mic. It could be a 57, and just start moving that towards the center where the beater is, 
and um, make sure your face is right. And there's your EQ. When you get back in the control room, you have your low end and you have your high end. And um, if you need to, if you have too much honk from that 57, I find if I angle it down a bit uh, or bring it a bit lower uh, below the uh, beater point. Um, and by the way, I'm talking about a beetle drum, a beetle kick drum sound, which yeah. is front head off. It's a bit of a different story when you have a hole in the drum. This is a single-headed kick drum. Um, uh, angle it down a bit, and now you, you create a mid-sweep, and you get rid of your, um, your mids. You just don't do it and then go back and listen. Hopefully you have a, a, a really great pair of cans that are very tight to your head. Or, in my case... Um, I always use in-ears. I spent the money on in-ears. And I actually would tell my students, um, when getting drum sounds by yourself, it's very important to forget about maybe one expensive microphone that you would like to have in your, in your arsenal and maybe put 500 bucks towards a pair of triple driver uh, molded uh, in-ears um, that were ma are made for your ear canal and then get a couple of those uh, shotgun headphones and put them over it. <laughs> Um, I always get drum sounds with in-ears now. I, I, I always bring a, an extension cable so I can move around the drum set, and I tell the engineer, you know, what mics I want on, and we kind of add as we go along just so I can hear phase. But with in-ears, um, also years of experience of knowing what drum sound I I want when I get into a when I walk into a studio. Um, it's incredible how quickly you can get drum sounds. It's also incredibly incredible how obvious it is where that drum is singing or where that drum needs some surgery and tuning or a fresh head or whatever uh, when you put in-ears in. Um, of course, if I'm the producer um, and I'm able to stay in the control room and I have an assistant out in the room, I can then have that person move the mics around and watch me and then... You know, when I say stop right there over the talkback, it's the same thing. But if I'm out in the room, I have to do it within ears. Um, and I'm always successful. That's, I've spent a, a huge amount of time <laughs> with my ears in trying to do exactly what you're describing. I, and it's, um, it when you're not quite sure what you're doing, it's quite hard. But then once you get used to it, it, it does, you're right. It's, it's, you almost forget what the sound in, in, uh, it sounds um, a bit uh, a bit counterintuitive to what you just said, but you almost forget what the sound in the room is like and you just end up focusing on, on what's going on in your head, in your ears. Um, and it, you're right, it does make for a much better sound on the record when, uh, when you're able to do it that way rather than sort of doing a recording and then having to go back and listen to, the, to it through your speakers and then back and forthing that way is a, a real pain. And I'm not saying that I get it right, um, and then we, we hit record. Sometimes I do have to go and retweet. Um, or as I, like the phase could be a bit better on a, on a certain microphone, and that's by going in the control room and listening to it over, you know, flat speakers. But, um, you know, I have to add, it, it also has a lot to do with sitting at a, at a mixing desk and, and hearing drums soloed um, and how react to that so I want to, I do want to hear that when I'm out in the room getting drum sounds as if I am sitting there at the desk uh, obviously but my method is um, you know work with the drum and the tune the drums um, 
and start with the I don't kick drum. I have everything muted. I start with the kick drum. I usually start with the the uh, the ambient or the low end mic, the resonant mic. Um, if it's even if it's a, a double headed uh, drum with a hole or without a hole, start with that mic. Get it where I like it. Uh, then have the engineer uh, unmute uh, the secondary mic, and I find the point with that mic, angle it if I, if I think it's too mid-ranging, because I can't stand the sound of a, of a mic that's in the center of the kick drum. I think it's just phasey and just not really the way a kick drum uh, ever sounds when you hear it on a recording. Um, once I get that right, um, I then go to the snare drum, and, uh, you know, just with my, I had the engineer uh, unmute it and get a certain level out of it, usually fairly loud um, or louder than where the kick drum is for a minute, and just uh, move it around and just see where that drum sings. I find lately that when I point the uh, snare drum mic towards the tom shell, the rack tom shell, uh, the rack tom shell is reacting with more overtones, um, and I tend to leave it there. I almost never, unless it's a 70s sound with a uh, a lot of baffling on the snare drum, I almost never have the snare drum mic closer than, you know, one and a half inches. I, I can't, because really I can't use a snare drum mic that is right on top of the head. No. Um, I almost always have a snare bottom mic. Um, if it's, you know, if it's a fairly modern session, um, I know as a drummer what that head is doing, and if I'm also mixing it, I know I'm going to use some of it. Mm-hmm. And then I go to hi-hat, if we're using the hi-hat. Um, and then I usually go right to my overheads and get them together um, and get the full spectrum of the set that way. And I don't I don't rely on overheads just for symbols. I, I tend to keep my overheads fairly wide so that I get a wonderful in-phase uh, snare picture too with the cymbals uh, just so I can use the mics for more than just cymbals you know, unless like it's, again it's, if it's a really quiet 70s thing then I'll have the mics primarily for the cymbals and I'm talking about something that's a little more 60s sounding um, but it has to be used in the modern realm through most of my sessions where it's vintagey but we're recording it for maybe a new artist um, so this is one specific thing I then mute the overheads, and then I go right to the close mics on the toms if I'm using them. Um, make sure they're in phase. Make sure that the tones are 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 um, uh, the equivalent, and also find that air, find that sweet spot with the air. And if there's too much low end, angle that mic away, angle it away from the, where the closest symbol is, of course. Um, now I have my overheads muted still, so now it's a close mic sound. And make sure that the close mic sound is as pro and beautiful as possible, just in case we decide that we don't want to use a lot of uh, ambient sounds. I find that when I mix someone, uh, when I mix a record, a lot of times people spend way too much time on the beauty of the room. They don't spend enough time on the idea of maybe just using the close mics, and the close mics just are full of overtones and fatigue and whatever. Um, got the close mics happening. I then go to my room mics, maybe a mono overhead or, or what's out in the room. Oh, you know, usually a large diaphragm or, or uh, rhythm mics. Get them into a level of beauty. I usually start from one side. Uh, the other side is muted. 
then go to the other side and move that so I, the, the stereo spectrum, if I had it panned, just you can tell when it just hits and gives you this beauty of a room that's uh, totally balanced. Um, bring back in the overheads, get a little balance, um, and that's it. If the drum is good and consistent, I usually don't compress uh, anything except for maybe a bu little bit of bus compression on a master um, uh, in Pro Tools or uh, outboard. I tend to not print it. Um, and that's my sort of generic new and old. Um, but we haven't even touched on tuning or the types <laughs> of heads, but... Um, but a lot of that information, point being, a lot of that information has come from uh, uh, Jeff and uh, talking to Elliot Shiner. And um, also, um, Lynn John's book has a lot of information, too. Uh, I love that Lynn John says that he never used tape measures. Really? I There's, um, there's a video on YouTube of um, Glyn John's explaining his technique, and he is... Uh, I don't know what the right word is for it, but he's quite um, blah. Uh, the word I'm going to say is blasé, although that seems a little bit too crude. It's a bit feels a bit unfair, but he is quite um, free about where he puts the mics. You're saying he also says nothing about measuring, right? Yeah, he kind of just says use your ears, like like what you're saying, basically. You know, put one here, put one over here, move them around a bit until it sounds really good, and then there you go. Yeah, I mean, someone like Glenn Johns, who has done an incredible amount of sessions, I do find that um, after a while, you kind of know where to start. You know, if you know what the drums, how the drums are singing in the room, you kind of know where to start with your, uh, with your, with your maybe uh, ambient mics or mics that aren't so close to the drums. Um, but... Oh, Glenn's story on the Led Zeppelin sound was, you know, it was funny. It was a revelation in that uh, he talks about all these videos on YouTube, people using the uh, measuring uh, uh, tape, and he laughs at that, and he said it's not how it happened. I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this story because um, it's been out there for a bit, but uh, to make a long story short, and this is, this is tons of information, too, is that they had just done a Led Zeppelin session, and he actually had even though he was running it most likely in mono, he actually had um, stereo overheads. Um, um, I shouldn't say that. He may have actually had the kid on one channel um, and then tick drum on a different channel, um, which I know he had done um, with other bands. Anyway, so he's got stereo overheads. They get the take, and... Um, uh, then uh, 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 Jimmy Page decides to add an acoustic guitar track, and the assistant brings the if you're uh, if you're a uh, drummer's point of view, he brings the uh, overhead large diaphragm mic uh, over to Jimmy, um, the right overhead. So it was the overhead over 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 Bonham's ride cymbal. He brings that over to Jimmy, uh, who's sitting in front of the drums now doing an acoustic guitar overdub, and um, Jimmy does the tape. They want to move on to a second track. Uh, they put the mic back where uh, Glenn had it as an overhead over the light symbol, but the engineer doesn't tighten the boom stand tight enough, and the thing starts to slide down, and now it's kind of sitting outside of the floor tom, but it didn't totally come down 
to the full boom uh, uh, extension and pointing towards the floor. So Glenn starts pulling the drums back up to get back to basics and doesn't really notice that the, uh, the mic isn't where it should be. And I guess Bonham got back on the kit and starts playing and he notices something's different and liked it, liked the uh, presence of that mic being over there and just panned uh, the overhead left, that's over his rack tom, and panned the one that's sort of just beyond the floor tom right, um, kick up center. He's not sure if he used much of the snare at all. And it, it suddenly had this full spectrum and air. He said he tweaked it a little bit, moved it slightly, um, maybe freaked up for phase. And he loved it. He loved that it just solved the drum, uh, 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 the, way, the way Bonham tuned his drums in, in such an open way. And so he used it, uh, I, I guess, uh, on more Led Zeppelin sessions until um, you know, Eddie Kramer came in <laughs> um, and used a whole bunch of mics. I actually worked with Eddie fairly recently and was able to pick his brain about Led Zeppelin sessions. Cool. I I hadn't heard that story. I I have to admit I'm a bit late to the party. I haven't read Glenn's book yet. It's on my pile of books to read, um. But I hadn't heard that story. That's was really a, um. That's pretty good, incredible story. And by the way, it's such a great place for a floor tom mic. If you tune your drums like a jazz drummer, if you if you if you don't have any baffle or very little baffle, and you have a lot of tone, a lot of resonance. It's such a great place to put a microphone, even if you're using close mics on your toms. Um, I, I do that. I I don't always put the mic back there, but I try to, to get it in as often as possible. I, you know, I, these days, um, I do a lot of drumming for an American TV show here called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And uh, you guys, do you know that over there? It's on Amazon. I th- I, the name rings a bell. I, I haven't um, watched any programs on Amazon, but... Uh... That it's a. I think if you told me what the plot was, I'd know what it was because I've heard I've heard the name of the show. Well, I don't have Amazon, <laughs> so I've actually never seen an episode. But I do know that uh, it's about um, a housewife who becomes a stand-up comedian, and and, and she just changes her life by uh, getting into the entertainment world. It's 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 it's, it's wildly successful here, right. and um, I do I work with the production team on other. Uh, TV shows, um, and I'm fortunate that the producer, um, the musical supervisor, is a fan of my drumming, and it's a lot of uh, Hal Blaine and the early '60s drumming. And you know, I I tend to be called not only to play on 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 the uh, the episode music, but to also you know get the correct sounds, and they rely on me for that, which I you know I'm grateful. Um, and I just did a, a, a COVID you know, sort of ISO session, because, you know, normally I go into a studio in New York City and we try to record it, they, or they record it like an old New York City session with everybody in the room, an orchestra um, um, and uh, a rhythm section, almost like an old Phil Spector session, um, which is such a great experience. <laughs> Having said that, there are more episodes to finish, so they sent me a whole bunch of, uh, of basic tracks uh, that I had to add drums to. And I did it up here uh, right after I finished my uh, sort of building my studio, my control room. And I used the Glenn Johns method. I, I, I asked them if they were cool with me uh, getting creative. I used the Glenn Johns method to record those drums, uh, the drums up here, large diaphragms uh, on the uh, overhead of the 
rack tom, uh, same mic behind the floor tom, within ears found the sweet spot. So I was able to do it myself, actually, because I don't have an engineer up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, my wife was here. If I did have like a kick, I needed to move a kick drum mic and call her downstairs to kick it while I got that <laughs> sound. But, yeah, whatever it takes. But I, but in point being, I did also just in case they wanted something a little more close and 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 intimate, I did uh, put um, uh, like small cardioid mics on the toms, um, and also for point in case they wanted that. Um, but I love I love that miking technique, and I know that you wanted to talk about the Fab Four, and we can, but I can tell you that. Um, we go nuts with drum sounds in the Fab Faux. Uh, between my drum tech, uh, my front of house engineer, and myself, we, I get there super early. And the Fab Faux, it's, it's a giant production. And um, we use two drum sets on stage <laughs> early and late. You know, we do uh, one drum set covers 63 through 68 ish, and then um, another drum set covers. Um, Abbey Road through uh, through um, uh, Let It Be and a bit of the White Album, um, and we mic them up and we spend a lot of time. Uh, well, with the later years kit, it's close mics, it's tea towel drums, correct drums, um, it's darker cymbals. Um, the mics are, are a bit more into the kit, but the early years kit at stage right is the Glenn Johns method, which, which you know, he did, he was in on Let It Be. He did use that mono uh, overhead. But we really make sure that it sounds like an early Beatles record with shimmery cymbals to make it sound like the overheads are, you know, doing more work. Um, maybe, uh, but no baffle on the drums, uh, double-headed kick drum. Uh, and we have a great time. And we're, doing, we're doing it for so many years, but we still... Um, enjoy solving it every week uh, uh, our engineer sorry sorry to interrupt you i, I love it i i was gonna that was gonna be one of my questions actually you answered it i there's a video on um on youtube it's off i i came across it from your website of you guys playing at beetle week um in 2014 um and you had two kits there and i was going to ask whether that was a special but you you guys play with two kits all the time i say you guys you play with two kits all the time on that show yeah, we do. Actually, we just changed over. Um, uh, I think the the, the uh, era of the two kits and the Fab Four is taking a break for a bit. Um, and, and we, I, but I do want to talk about the two kits because it's been quite an education in getting studio drum sounds for a live application. And I was going to say my engineer, Joe Chinisi, who is an, in, he's an incredible musician. He's got incredible ears. And we're so lucky to have him because... He's a geek like us for all Beatle nuances, and he actually loves getting drum sounds, and um, and uh, he tolerates, you know, my uh, anal retentive uh, <laughs> uh, proclivities when it gets when it go, when it comes to getting drum sounds, and uh, and also my drum tech Neil Nunziato, you know, he also seems to dig it. So the three of us get deep in it. Um, but uh, yeah, the two kits um, like. The only difference now is that I decided that I, I, I want to maybe do the next couple of years with one hybrid kit um, that can handle early and late um, because I just want to change it up for myself. So the second kit is becoming uh, a uh, arsenal of floor toms. 
um, because Will and I do a double drummer thing doing Strawberry Fields. And for those that don't know, the outro of Strawberry Fields is Ringo on drum set and John Lennon on Floyd Tom. And you can tell in the anthologies that John is on Floyd Tom because you hear him talking in the studio as it ends. So we're, we're going to play, we play that up. Um, and instead of having a second drum set, where for the last 10 years or so, Will and I have traded uh, with drum sets, and we've actually um, uh, gone to each drum set where we kind of walk uh, across from each other. And, and um, he goes to later years, I go to early years, and vice versa. So it's, it's all entertainment. But I, I asked Will if he would be okay with um, doing a similar thing, but me uh, and he going to the floor Tom station and playing that up, like almost like the, uh, the Beatles recording on steroids. That's cool. Really cool. Um, so you are you using double floor tom now instead. Uh, it's, it's something. Uh, so I I play in a in a Beatles show too, and I one of the things we struggle with is, it, one of the things I struggle with is getting that sound, the early sound and the late sound. Um, so I've ended up somewhere in the middle finding a sound that works for everything, um, and then putting the details on for parts of the later sound, um, which is it's all a compromise. But I admire that you've you've managed to um to find people that you're working with and have the patience yourself to make make it work live i mean that's why you guys are so renowned yeah it's nothing like us um you know as uh, look we we certainly are religious to to these the the intricacies of beatles music and i think we were the first ones to really get into the correct voicings and the um the overall mood of the approach and, you know, really dissect it. But fortunately, we're all good enough musicians where we can dissect it and put it back together and still inject a bit of ourselves into it to make it, you know, also a, uh, uh, a show that goes beyond just replication. And, you know, I'm very proud of um, what the five of us have done with the Fab Four. I mean, you know, we still play... Uh, uh, some of our shows with horns and strings and that's where it really is untouchable, you know, it's, but I mean, we, as a five piece, um, it really is a great band, um, you know, with, uh, Jimmy Vivino on guitars and keyboards and, uh, you know, Frank Agnello who plays uh, rhythm guitar and Jack Petrozelli on keyboards and guitars. And then of course, Will, Will Lee, uh, who asked me to do it on where Will plays bass and guitars and keyboards and, um, and there's so much personality in the Fab Four. We, as diligent as I am with, uh, with getting drum sounds, these guys are the same way, you know, the, the correct guitars, um, tweaking the amps to sound right. Um, but we certainly depart from the Beatles sound every once in a while. And, I think it has a lot to do with our success because I think when people come to our shows, they know that it sounds like a Beatles record, but then for a little while it might sound like a Who record <laughs> or it might sound like a um, an Albert King record, you know, or, um, or, you know, a Little Richard, you know, because, you know, we we try to keep, try to stay with their influences, but, um, you know, someone like Jimmy Pavino, who is an incredible lead guitarist and, um, really comes from the blues, comes from pop music, but his, his guitar playing is steeped in the blues. 
So he'll always inject that into Beatles music maybe a bit more than George was, because George wasn't really a blues player. But people realize this, that Jimmy, he's playing like George, but he's injecting an additional real element, which is the blues. And you can't go wrong with uh, a blues influence. I think that might be... I, I really admire the that you guys have the um the confidence um in I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully like in the confidence in your success to to inject your own personalities in because I th- I think um I mean coming from the the world of Beatles tribute it can feel um a lot of time uh that there's there's pressure to replicate exactly when really that's not what it should be about. I mean, if you want to hear the Beatles playing exactly, go and listen to um, anything that they've put, you know, listen to the studio records or go and listen to the BBC sessions or something if you want to hear the Beatles doing it. And if you're going to recreate it, you may as well enjoy doing it and not be a stickler for it. Need everything needing to stay precisely within the constraints of what would have been of, in that era and just enjoy yourself. And I think the audience... Um, no doubt we'll get on board with that and that's uh, a huge uh, contributor, uh, contributing factor to your guys' success. I'm glad that you feel that way. Um, it's not always the case um, with uh, purists, of course. And, and you know, our, we've certainly been criticized for, uh, as time went on, our personalities um, uh, sort of uh, rising to the top of the sound, but it's also, it also has broadened our audience. I mean, we, um, we really don't get little tribute fans that would go see like a 1964 and they just want to feel like they're watching the Beatles. You know, we get classic rock fans and we get audiophile fans. Um, and we certainly have Beatle tribute fans, but, um, uh, I, I think that we're a bit of an anomaly um, in what uh, people are soaking up when they come see us. And I have to admit that, you know, I tend to push the envelope more than anybody else in the band. <laughs> I have a really hard time with replication. You know, I fought well on being in the Fab Four initially because I was afraid of having to replicate uh, something that was so precious to me, or even just replicate in general. And um, the world saw something in my playing. Uh, we had been touring with uh, the late, great Hiram Bullock, um, a New York guitarist in, in, uh, in Europe. And Will just heard a lot of uh, Ringo and Jim Keltner in my playing, and he asked if I'd like to start a Beatles band with him. And I, you know, I said, nah, not really. And... Um, <laughs> You know, that makes Will want to do it even more. <laughs> uh, so he called me every week for a bunch of months, and I, I said, you know, man, I've been watching this guy. I, I mean, I'm not a lot younger than Will, but certainly when I was in college, I watched David Letterman every night for years, and, you know, I loved his playing. I loved that band, the house band on the early, early Letterman, uh, in the early Letterman years. So, you know, why would I not want to play with Will? You know, and plus he's arguably, you know, one of the, the greatest session players that was ever lived. And it's obviously going to be something to learn by working with him. Um, but I think after 20 years, I'm the one who kind of departs and throws maybe something else in on the drums. Um, 
a bit more than the rest of the guys, but I think it makes them react a certain way, and I think the audience uh, appreciates that we are not um, staying by the book. I, I, I mean, Will stays by the book. I mean, he Will has an agenda, and I respect it. Um, but when Jimmy takes a solo on an outro, we tend to extend outros, uh, and Jimmy then becomes himself. And I love those parts of the show as much as I love when we get deep into like the mood of come together or, or uh, you know, tomorrow never knows, but, uh, like the record. Uh, but I love when we suddenly become ourselves and give the audience that side of us. Um, but I, I still feel, you know, in for me, it's let's say they tour today and they all were alive and they did have extra musicians in the band. How would we play it? Um, and how how would we get it out to the Raptors? And that makes me play it a bit more dynamic sometimes, or it makes me throw some of my other influences in there. Um, and like I said, I think I said, we're doing it for like 22 years. Wow. How much longer can I, you know, be a great replicator and not, <laughs> you know, jump off a cliff? You know, no disrespect, but, you know, that's just me. I think that, I mean, it would be obvious from anybody that knows you guys and from listening to this conversation that, you know, you're clearly extremely well-schooled in what's happening in Beatles music. So if anything, that give, that that does give you a platform to take it further. That's the reason that you can take it further um, and then start injecting your own personalities in it is because you're, you're not doing it as a reason because you can't play the originals you're doing it as a way of of um of building on it for you personally not building on it as in trying to build on the musical legacy or anything like that but you're um i think you're allowed to get away with it because you you do understand the intimacy of what's happening in those records so well in the first place we do both well we do Beatles well and we do a a band well, a band that listens. Everyone has great ears. And, you know, when we're not doing this gig, we're all busy doing other things, whether that be backing up other people or even being in a house band for a big event in New York where you have to change gears for every artist that uh, might be on the bill. You know, in New York, you know, when there's a, a music scene, of course, right now we're, we're down to zero. Yeah which is a real drag. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there are a lot of benefits, and, and some of us in the Fab Fog get called because we're known to sort of be able to, to uh, uh, turn corners quickly and, and also morph into uh, the type of player that's needed for a multi-artist bill. And I think that that musician is the type of musician that is always listening and always... Uh, sort of going with um, what's happening on stage rather than what's happening on the record. And some of those, some of the bigger bands, you know, they have a mission that they're going to play the stuff like the record, and that's fine. There's room for everybody. Or some of them can only play like that. And, you know, they don't stray because, you know, it may affect the show, it may affect the show in a negative. Uh, I love that we, um, you know, we all had a similar record collection growing up and you know and we can certainly uh pick and choose from uh you know all of those influences yeah it definitely works for you guys so um what's your 
I was, how do you decide what albums to play? So I I noticed on the shows that you go and play out, you um, you're either doing like a, a greatest hits mix or you're doing songs from uh, you know songs from Rubber Soul and songs from Hard Days Night. How do you um, who gets to decide which what you're doing that night? We all decide. Um, I manage the band, so I'll. Um, and once we get the contracts and the financials in place, we then talk about theme. So if it's a if it's a, an annual that we do, um, we'll look at the history and see what we haven't done there in a while. Um, and sometimes it's a mixed show. If we've done a couple of records, the same as we did Abbey Road two years ago, and we did Revolver last year, well. This year we go back and do, we call it a glorious hodgepodge. <laughs> and someone may have actually given us that term, but um, that's that could be everything. And that's usually um, big productions or big Beatles productions and or stripped down early stuff. And this that culminates usually with a uh, uh, you know, big piece like, um, uh, you know, the, the medley on Abbey Roadside too, or... Um, a day in the life where you're using everybody, horns and strings. Um, if it's a new market and the financials aren't uh, what they will eventually be when you establish an audience, we'll go in as a five-piece and we will play a lot of early stuff, but we'll also incorporate a lot of the material that maybe isn't giant. Uh, like we probably wouldn't play... I, I don't actually. We, we do just about everything now. With that, um, we wouldn't do Martha My Dear because that's so uh, uh, horn and string centric. But we certainly will. We might do Strawberry Fields. We'll, we'll keep Wallace in because um, Jimmy plays uh, orchestrations and Jack plays Wurlitzer um, piano. Uh, so we're able to sort of, even though I, I know it's not real instruments, we uphold a certain level of uh, of spontaneity and um, and uh, intensity uh, to keep it in the set list. Having said that, uh, when we do walls with the horns and strings, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I can imagine having uh, a live band there um, must make a huge amount of difference to the sound of well that song particularly, let alone others. Yeah. Yeah, I love our rock and roll shows too. Every once in a while, we'll just go back as a side piece, and we'll like. I remember one year we did. Um, remember doing like the um, the Hollywood Bowl show, um, and just a night of early stuff, and then we embellished it maybe with a bunch of encores that may have had some stuff from later years. But um, you know, I think because we solved '66 through '70. Um, in the first 10 years of the band, we then started going back. And I mean, we always say it that the early stuff is harder to play than the later stuff because you have to have that youthful exuberance. <laughs> um, you got to think like a teenager playing your instruments again. And I love that. It, it kept me uh, in touch with, um, you know, a bit of a haphazard, you know, Ringo in D.C., energy you know which is that's great drumming it's crazy isn't it i mean that's he's he's wild uh during that show it's it's uh like genuinely wild (laughs) some of what he plays is insane i know and 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 there's it's funny people say 
Bear, you know, is he really a great drummer? Yeah, he's great, and he and he wore many hats. He could be an arena rock drummer like that and push the band and and also create a template for playing like that. Um, and then you, he can go in the studio and, and you know, uh, uh, take direction and create these uh, wonderful singer-songwriter parts that, you know, are just honoring the vocal and uh, and then be involved. You know, Jeff Emmett told me that Ringo always tuned his own drums. Uh. And the drums always sounded great, you know, like he really had an ear for tuning also. I didn't know that. That was, um, funnily enough, I was uh, having a conversation with um, an artist I was working with recently and we were chatting about that exact thing and I didn't know. Um, so that's really interesting that he tuned his own drums. Yeah. about him tuning his own drums and and uh, the poor lad um, having to do so many takes that, you know, there were wood sheddings always at his feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a... No, I, you know, it's funny. You... Sorry, go on. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you know, we um, work with Jeff. We, you know, like I said, we did a tutorial in New York years ago. There was a studio that was no longer there called Legacy Bound Studios. And it was very similar to, it was more like Studio Three, uh, Studio One than it was uh, Studio Two. Mm. It was a big room. And, um, you know, we, we brought the right gear. And that was my first time working with Jeff. And, and you know, it was a, a full day of just incredible information. And we were going for... Uh, Hey Bulldog. So uh, we got the drums right, and we—I I brought in photos, you know, because that session is documented. They did record that um, that session. It was used for another video when it came out. Was it used for Lady Madonna? They used the footage of Hey Bulldog, and then recording it for a Lady Madonna video. Ninety <laughs> percent certain it's Lady Madonna, um, and we didn't know that till you know recently. Um, but now we know that they did a multi-camera shoot for Hey Bulldog. Having said that, there's your information in that video for how the drums are mic'd so, and how the drums are T-toweled. So we emulated that, got the drums right, and then we start playing, got the amps right, we start playing, and, and Jeff is recording us and and um, keeps stopping me. You know, I, I, I start... I start the, uh, the count off and get into it and... And he stops. He goes, hey, Rich, um, would you mind putting the kick drum a bit harder? I said, yeah, okay, okay. And three more times this happens. Hold it, Rich. You really need to kick it harder. Now, I just so I, I forgot this one point, I advanced a lot of the gear for that day. I, I you know, through his manager, um, was able to get Fairchild compressors. Um, that may have been it. Oh, the, and microphones, certain microphones for the drums. And amps. Um, so, by the fifth time, finally, and my leg is about to fall off now. I'm hitting the kick drum so hard. And we get the take, and we go in, and I go over to him, and I ask, Jeff, why did you want me to hit the kick drum so hard? And he points to the Fairchild compressor. And he says, you see that compressor? He goes, I set it a certain way, and I need the drummer to hit the kick drum hard enough to fatigue the tubes at a certain amount, would that compressor have the Beatles sound? <laughs> so he's honoring the gear before he's honoring the drummer, <laughs> which is such an incredible idea. And I thought, right, of course, you have to, you can't turn the input up. It's not the same thing. You have to fatigue the valves. 
um, at a certain level for it to sort of uh, have that pulsating sound that is so, all those great kick drum sounds that you heard on Beatles records. Um, and so, oh, I just love that, you know, I had that information right there. What an amazing story. What an amazing experience to, to work with someone cl- so closely connected to, to that history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sad to say that I was one of the last people to see Jeff. Um, uh, he came to a Fab Flow show in L.A., and he and I hung out after the gig, and he said, I really would love to do something with you guys. And he, then he said, in particular, me, um, as far as drum sounds. Now, he's, he was at a sound check. I believe he was at one of our sound checks. He saw the effort that we put in to drums, and we, he and I would chat um, about what I love about getting drum sounds. He knew, I, he knew I would pick his brain. And, you know, he wasn't always forthcoming, you know. He could, he could shut down with people. Mm. But somehow he liked me. So at the night of the gig, he said, why don't we uh, talk? And I said, well, I'm leaving in two days. He said, well, I'm doing a lecture in L.A. We were, this is a California show. I'm doing a lecture in L.A. Uh, I think it was the next night or two nights later. I said, I'll be there. And... Uh, he was very tired at the lecture, and um, it ended, and I went over to chat with him, and I thought to myself, oh, this isn't a good night to talk about what he and I could uh, do together um, um, in, uh, you know, uh, in a lecture series, either with the Fab Foe or whatever ideas he had uh, for he and myself. So I said, well, why don't we talk this week? Um, thanks. And um, he died that night. Oh man. Yeah, that's a that that's a I know it's um it's a sad story but it's a really special story. Um and uh yeah, that's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I know that's a that's a yeah, I'm not quite sure what oh, I don't have many words for that. That's amazing. Yes, I was very lucky to have him in my life and, and also I'm, I'm grateful that he noticed my passion for it all yeah and uh would hear me out you know on uh how i incorporate his techniques into everything i do yeah i mean given the the passion that you have for this there probably isn't um much of a, a greater accolade than to have um had some uh what like a admiration from jeff for, for what you're doing that's amazing so uh, yeah that that's a that's an unbelievable story um and by the way when we did that uh this this uh this uh lecture musical lecture in new york city i don't think he had done uh a beatles drum session set up in a long time and he fought me on it <laughs> so you know this kid coming in I, mean, I wasn't really a kid but i was no i guess it's, we're going back like over 10 years, um, he saw me come in with my, you know, I'm getting beat, but I'm not going to. saw me coming in with my photographs, and um, let me get rid of this person. Hold on one second. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, no problem. Anyway, um, all right, so I forget where, oh, yeah, so yeah, he fought me on it. He fought me on um, on setting up uh, in, in a Beatle format, because I said, "Well, why, why are you why are you putting those mics up there?" And you know, I, I advanced these microphones that you used to have me heard. 
And it kind of gave me a look like, oh, well, why, you know, why don't we go for a modern sound of a Beatle? And I convinced him with his assistant to please think in terms of, um, you know, the late 60s. And um, I, I almost feel like maybe he hadn't been doing it anymore, that we were one of the first sessions he had done where he was revisiting a Beatles setup. And then since then, he had done it plenty um, because, you know, there was this whole renaissance of of, uh, of Beatles recordings. And um, anyway, so I'm glad that he, he gave in to me. Yeah, that's really cool. That's very cool. What what was it that you were working on that day? Yeah, that that was this um this sort of uh, uh, it was a weird thing. It was it was this organization in New York um, that wanted to bring. They charged a lot of money for people, and not even a lot of engineers, just a lot of uh, very wealthy Beatles fans to watch how a Beatles session may have progressed, <laughs> and. Um, they were able to uh, afford Jeff and afford us, and and we just spent the day with um, a bunch of uh, rich New Yorkers watching us record. <laughs> and there's a, there's a small video of it on YouTube, uh, recording with Jeff Emmerich, um, that I think someone in the organization had put together. All right, I'll check it out. I haven't seen that. Um, I won't take any more of your time. I, I know you're really busy. It's um, It's been such a great conversation with you like i thank you for being um so open in sharing all your stories and your knowledge and uh i i could uh chew your ear off forever on very sm- small details that probably only um, you and i are interested in <laughs> well i appreciate it and i know um i know you said you wanted to talk about my stuff too i just want to add that i'm i'm really busy finishing my second record um of original music and it should be out um, this fall um, so the band's uh, Sugarcane Cups isn't it yeah Rich Pagano and the Sugarcane Cups and I I, I, um, I like I said I have a, a recording studio in Midtown in New York City um, but you know now that I'm staying away from New York City um, I'm able to do mixing up here um, and up in the Hudson Valley uh, New York State and so it's interesting uh, how the recordings are sounding a bit different. Um, it's okay, and uh, I'm looking forward to putting this out there because um, it's got an interesting theme on what's been going on in the world and in my life in the last couple of years. Uh, and it's a rock and roll record. Um, <laughs> There's some um, incredible drum sounds on the first record. I, I had a listen through um, before I spoke to you, and uh, the the sort of breadth of drum sounds is pretty large. They change quite significantly for each track obviously there's there's a unity to the sound but the you do um you do go deep into different drum sounds i i think and they all sound amazing they are all there is a a, a big weighting towards great drum sounds on that on that album well thank you yeah um uh what can i say i i hope this one um is uh, as sonically pleasing um you know i i tend to I feel like Ringo when it comes to my stuff. I really don't want to. Uh, I don't want a grandstand. I just want to support the, um, you know, the songs. So um, I hope you like it. I will. I will make sure you get a copy as soon as uh, as soon as it comes out. Oh, thank you. Um, I look forward to it, and I'll put links to the um, to the first album on the show notes. And there's a few other things that you've mentioned um, in uh, in this chat. 
and I'll, I'll put links to those as well as links to um, your website. So there we have it. Um, and as usual, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, we continued to chat for a little while after that, but it was just nonsense chat, so I, I faded it out. Um, it's not always easy to get a, a clean sign off at the end um, of these because they are just chats. You know, I'm literally just calling them up and having a chinwag. Um, so, yeah, um, next week's episode uh, or next week, uh, next fortnight's episode um is going to be with gordon elsmore who's the drummer for the bootleg beatles um another really interesting conversation um gordon's uh obviously a wealth of knowledge on ringo um and it was actually suggested by a listener that i get in touch with gordon um and we chat about some ringo stuff um so uh that's what i've done um, so that's what's coming next time. Um, I'll put links to all of the things to do with Rich. Um, and there's a couple of things that he mentioned in uh, this episode that I will link to in the show notes. Um, so if you want to catch any of that, then uh, scroll down. Uh, as usual, if you want to get in touch with me, if you've got a suggestion for, for people that you, you think it would be good for me to chat to, um, then give me an email on uh, joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, you can visit my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, for more information about the things that I do, there's this, the isolated drum stems that I send out. The one that I've just done this week was Come Together. Um, so, yeah, you can check all of that out. There's a full archive of all the stuff I've done so far on there. Um, and for set general like sessions and that kind of stuff. Um, as usual, I want to say thank you to Joe Kane, who uh, provided the intro and outro music uh, that I absolutely adore. Um, and my other good friend, David Henshaw, for the beautiful artwork he provides every episode. Um, and that's that. So until next time in a fortnight, uh, have a good couple of weeks. Goodbye. <laughs>